We're going to learn from what I like to call the parable of the sleeping farmer. The title for the message today is While You Were Sleeping. And uh, as Susanna mentioned, today is a special day for us as a church. Um, if you're a guest with us, to let you know, we are sending off Sean and Hannah Wu and and uh, Sean has served here as a pastoral intern for the past year. Uh, Hannah has served alongside Sean as well. And, and uh, he started the year with the intention um, to be trained with the view of planting a church in Boston eventually. So uh, this sending off is part of the whole plan, uh, that he uh, would be sent to the Sovereign Grace Pastors College as part of that training and development for uh, 10 months and uh, just to continue to develop and train and confirm what the Lord's doing, and then to come back next June. Is it June? Yep, yep. To come back in June, and then to serve with us in a church planting residency. So that's our hope. That's our prayer. Um, Please pray for, and I know you will be praying for Sean and Hannah uh, for this time. I think it's going to be a wonderful time for them. I'm a graduate of the Pastors College as well, and had a uh, Peg and I and the whole family actually had a fantastic experience. Uh, uh, it's kind of like a spiritual Disney World experience. It's just you, just uh, a lot of great learning and experience. So I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Uh, so it's a special day for us to send them off. It, it's uh, sad and they're parting, but exciting and thinking of what God will be doing. And it's fitting, actually, for us to be looking at Mark four twenty six to 29 this morning. I think it's a wonderful parable to build a ministry on. It's a wonderful parable to build a life on for all Christians. Uh, There's a wonderful central truth in this parable uh, that Jesus brings to us to serve as a foundation for our lives, a wonderful truth about the sovereign grace of God. And we are part of a family of churches called Sovereign Grace, and maybe you've heard that word and thought, well, what does it mean? Is it just kind of a catch word? I I know there's a sovereign bank down the road. Is this kind of another uh, brand? Uh, and sovereign grace, sovereign means it's basically kingly. It means uh, a rule. It means being in charge. And when we talk about sovereignty in, term, in terms of theology, what the Bible uh, speaks about, we mean that God is in control. He's the king that reigns over all things. He's in control of every detail. That's what sovereign, sovereignty means. And when we say sovereign grace, grace is a free gift, undeserved. It's something given to us, not because we merit it. Uh, it's because God is gracious. He's good. And, and actually, the uh, creation itself is full of grace. God blesses those who don't necessarily deserve it, who don't deserve it. So when we say sovereign grace, we mean that God is in control of giving grace and, and blessing. He makes the choices to bless and where and how to do that. He's in, he has that prerogative, and in his goodness, he pours out grace. Uh, so that's what we mean when we say sovereign grace. Uh, we, we look to the Lord as the source of grace and the king overall and and choosing uh, how to bless and how to work. And so that truth of sovereign grace is, is a wonderful truth, and that's really what uh, Jesus is pointing to in this psalm, uh, this parable we're going to look at. And I think it's a really wonderful parable, a story to build a life on. And so it's fitting that we today, as we send Sean and Hannah off, we are reminded by the Lord himself. He orchestrated this. I didn't plan this for today. Um, we planned this preaching series a long time ago before we knew the exact date uh, and so in his 
goodness, he's caring for you guys and really for all of us to remind us of these things. The reality is, guys, that we forget so quickly that God is in charge, don't we? We forget that he's in charge, and we very quickly think that, that we are in control of our lives. We quickly forget um, that our best efforts apart from God's blessing are nothing more than a house of cards. We quickly fall into this pattern that everything hinges on us. That if we do a, a good job and we work hard, then we'll be successful. And, and, and in a sense, I, I don't know about you, I can feel at times that, that uh, it's not just like if I do this thing, something will result. I, get, I live under this feeling sometimes that, that kind of everything's on me to, to perform. If I perform well, then the sun will rise the next day. I, I, I tend to think like that at times. We forget very quickly that, that God is in charge and we really have very little control over our lives. And we live under this, this pressure. We live under this, really, I think it's, it's a delusion that everything hinges on us. It's all uh, dependent on our hard work and our vigilance. And certainly God calls us to work. God gives us a role to play. But we tend to just think that that role is, is everything. Everything hinges on me, and I better do these things. And as a result, we, we end up living under quite a degree of stress. And anxiety results from that because we think we bear the burden. We bear the burden for, for creation. We bear the burden for our family, our children. We bear the burden for all these different things. And, and so we live under this stress and anxiety. And anxiety is a huge problem in, in our country. One-third of the money spent on mental health is for anxiety-related maladies. In 1999, uh, it was reported that anxiety disorders cost the U.S. more than $42 billion a year. Almost one-third of the total $148 billion spent on mental health issues. Almost 20% of the population is affected with some sort of anxiety disorder, so diagnosable anxiety disorder. 20%, one-five of the population struggles with some sort of anxiety disorder. And if you don't have an anxiety disorder, you will most likely at some point struggle, though, with anxiety. I'd say 100% of the population struggles with anxiety. And often for some of us, you can feel like, and maybe you feel like this today, that you just simply go from one crisis to the next. One fire to put out to the next. One stress-inducing experience to the next. And that mentality, that stress can affect everything. And it can affect how we do church life, how we do spiritual things too. We can think that spiritually everything depends on us. That if the church is going to grow and do its job, I need to do something. And if I don't do this, it's going to fail. Or if our children are going to come to know Christ and trust in Him, I better do all these things. And if I don't do these things, it's not going to happen. And the very worst thing will happen. Or our neighbors or our friends or our relatives, their spiritual reality, their salvation, their being rescued from sin to the Lord, their eternal life is on me. And if I would just pray a little harder or share the gospel a little clearer or love a little better, somehow it can make a difference and their salvation will occur. And we can live under stress like that. And for me as a lead pastor, I feel that all the time. I can live under constant stress and anxiety for this church. 
I can stay awake at night thinking about things. I can start my morning thinking, oh boy, this has to happen. This needs to happen. And if this doesn't happen, the church is, is going to fail. God's purposes in Haver will cease if I don't, you know, if I don't pray hard enough, if I don't preach well enough, if I don't care well enough for people, if I don't lead others well enough, it's all going to come tumbling down. Now, God calls me to those things, but I can feel that it all depends on those things. Do you guys ever feel like that? Do you ever approach your day with that view, thinking it all hinges on you? Well, Jesus in his goodness brings this wonderful teaching in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29. He brings it really first to his disciples who first hear it because they are in a situation where they perhaps are under stress. They're, they're wondering what's going on. We believe Jesus is the Messiah. He's preaching the word and, and things are not happening. The, the spiritual authorities are, are actually not just ignoring, they're actually hostile to Jesus. And not everybody is getting this. And yet this is the Messiah. He was supposed to change society. He was supposed to rescue Israel. And what's going on with the word? that It's not having its impact. So Jesus brings this teaching to them. To help them understand. To help them relate properly to the kingdom of God. He wants them to understand what they're called to do and what they're not called to do. What they can do and what they can't do and live in that. He wants his disciples to understand, and he wants us today to understand this truth. And he wants to change us. He wants to change us from anxious Christians to patient believers. Anxious Christians worrying about, you know, is this going to happen, to patient believers trusting in the sovereign grace and goodness of God. So let's pray. And ask him to do just that. Lord, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful parable. And we ask you, Lord Jesus, would you teach us through your words? Lord, often we wonder how wonderful it would be to be one of your disciples, to be there at your feet, to to hear you teach this firsthand. But Lord, uh, we are your disciples. And your spirit dwells in us. And you do teach us. And we can sit at your feet. You use the gift of preaching, and Lord, you you use your people to minister. And we ask you, Lord, that you would teach us, that we would hear your word and be changed, and you would teach us how to rest and rely on your sovereign grace. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's look at Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29, this parable of the sleeping farmer, or my Bible, the parable of the growing seed. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. God's word, Mark 4, 26 through 29. What I want to do is just kind of walk through verse by verse this parable, this story, and explain it and apply it. 
and trust that God will speak to us and change us through his word. So just follow along with me. I think in your notes, it's by the verses. You can just take notes as that serves you. And starting in verse 26, it says, And he said, The kingdom of God is as, as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. This is a parable that Jesus is telling. And as we've covered before, a parable is a story. It's a word picture. And parables usually uh, have one central key idea. They're not allegories. Uh, and that would be a mistake to treat a parable as an allegory. An allegory would be that everything represents something. And you have to find representation of everything. And, and you know, this talks about all these details. That's really not a, how a parable is intended. It's really a story that, that uh, is analogous. It's a picture. It's a word picture of something. Uh, it's a, uh, but it, it has a central truth. A central truth that comes with that story. So that's what Jesus is doing here. He's bringing a parable, the story, a word picture. And he is bringing this story to help us understand the kingdom of God. He says the kingdom of God is as if. And so he's going to tell this story about a man scattering seed and what goes on. And he does this elsewhere. He talks about the kingdom of God and he says it, it is like, it is as if. And he uses all these different things. Actually, the next passage is where he says it's, it's as a mustard seed. It's as a, a grain of, mustard, of a mustard seed. That's what he's going to say next. Elsewhere, he says it's like a pearl of great price or a hidden treasure or like a man catching fish. And all these are word pictures to explain the kingdom of God. He's wanting us to understand what the kingdom of God is like. And stories can be a very powerful way to get an understanding of something. We, we love stories. We tend to remember stories. Actually, as a pastor, uh, I see this reality. People can remember stories I told in messages years ago. They don't have any recollection of the passage that I was talking about. They will remember the story. Um, the cake police story comes up again and again, if you were around when I told that story, uh, which is a very silly story. But anyhow, uh, we remember stories, and Jesus understands this. He wants us to understand the kingdom of God. But first, we have to ask what is the kingdom of God? What's the kingdom of God? What does he mean by the kingdom of God? Well, a kingdom is a place that a king reigns. And usually we think of a kingdom as a territory, right? The, the kingdom uh, of England, the kingdom of Scotland, or the kingdom of France, things like that. A place where a king reigns and rules. In Scripture, it's not really so much that, though that is part of it. There's, there are geographical aspects to it. But it's, the word means little, something a little different than just a place, like France, some place where a king rules. It really means the experience of being under a king's reign. It's, it's the experience, it's the reality of a kingly reign. It's not necessarily attached to a, a place. Uh, it's basically a kingly reign. It's a kingship, maybe, if, if that helps you think of it. The, the kingship of God, the reign of God, the place the experience of where he rules and where he reigns. And Jesus tells us the kingdom of God is within you. So it's a reality, it's an experience that's uh, an internal one. It's something God does in our lives. He comes and he changes us and, and, and brings his reign to our lives. It's not necessarily a locale, though it, it eventually will be that in its f uh, fullness because his kingdom will, will fill the whole earth. Returns. Now, the church of God is not the kingdom of God. They're not the same. Now, certainly they're very much related. The church is the gathering of God's people, 
It's the gathered people of God. It's, it's the people of God who live in relationship together, both the capital C church, the whole church, and then many, many local churches. So specific, when we say local church, we mean specific churches with a small c are the gathered people of God. They've come together, but that's not the same as the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is where he reigns and rules. And actually, uh, not every aspect of church life is really under his reign. We There's parts of my life that are not under his reign. As I struggle and and learn to grow and become more and more like Christ, I find that there's areas where he addresses. says, Paul, your your patience with your wife needs to change. I'm here to help you with that. I'm here to teach you about my patience with you so you would turn and turn, be patient, and love your wife. But there's things in my life that aren't under his reign, so it's not synonymous. I'm a member of this church, and not everything about me is under his reign. So there's overlap there, but they're distinct. And that's important to understand. His, his, we're talking about his reign, where he rules, his kingship, the experience, the reality of that. So it's not synonymous with the church, though the church is certainly affected and transformed and made able to be the church because of the kingdom of God. That's important. It's also important that we don't think, and there's some thoughts on the kingdom of God that are out there, that it's any place where good is done in Jesus' name. And that's too loose of an understanding of the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is where the experience and reality of the king is. There has to be, there has to be a, a real relationship to the king. There needs to be truth. We need to know him. And we, the kingdom of God comes through the gospel. So where, where there is not a conscious faith in the gospel and conscious relationship to Jesus, there is no kingdom. So good deeds done in Jesus' name are not the kingdom. They are perhaps part of the kingdom when that's done in relationship to the king, but not necessarily so. So just a little bit on the kingdom, we could talk a lot about that. So when Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is as if, he's wanting to explain this kingdom, this reign of God. He wants them to understand what this reign is like, what it's like when we experience God at work, bringing his reign, bringing his truth. And so he tells this parable, he tells this story, he gives us a picture through a story, and there's so many wonderful parables to explain the kingdom of God. He says it as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. It's a picture of a man scattering seed on the ground. This isn't just an arbitrary guy who just happens to be randomly walking down the sidewalk scattering seed for some reason. This is a farmer. This is, this is the context that would be understood. It's a farmer at work scattering seed, and that's how they would plant seeds back in those days. They would just go out into a field that was usually previously plowed and, and just have a pouch and, and, and scatter seed, and they would plowing it in after that, and, and then the plants would eventually grow. So there's a man scattering seed. Now, we don't scatter seed, uh, at least on the large farms today. They don't scatter seed. They, they, pull a tra- they pull a device behind a tractor, and they drive, and they plant seeds with a thing called a seed drill. You guys ever seen a seed drill? thing that gets pulled behind a tractor, and it, and it, it plants every seed. Actually, you can control the spacing and the depth and everything of where those seeds go, and then it actually will fill it, fill it back in. Uh, it makes a big difference in terms of the efficiency of planting of seeds and, and growing things. Does anyone know who invented the seed drill? Excellent. Who, who said that? Very good. Jethro Tull, and it's not the rock band that invented the seed drill. He's a famous, uh, well, not too famous, I guess, agriculturalist from the 1700s who developed the seed drill, and that band liked the name, I guess, and got named Jethro Tull. He's the guy who invented the seed drill. Anyhow, that's not what's going on here. There's no seed drill. A guy's scattering seed. 
He's scattering the seed. And we've learned previously that Jesus is using the seed, this idea of the seed as the word of God, as the teaching that he himself is bringing. And really the ultimate, the core of that seed of the word of God, the the ultimate way to understand that, it's the good news of Jesus Christ himself. It's the good news that he's come. He's God in the flesh. He's come to fulfill all righteousness, to, to do everything that God intended for mankind to do and to be everything, really, he was called, mankind was called to be. Jesus comes to do that and to live this perfect life and fulfill all righteousness and then do something totally unexpected with this righteous life, with this uh, per- perfect life, to actually give that life away on the cross. To, to take that perfect life, that worthy life, that great life, that life with all sorts of potential apparently, and then to give it away on the cross, to suffer and die on the cross on purpose. Why? So that he could offer that righteous life in exchange for your imperfect life. Why would he do something like that? Because he's full of amazing love. He's a glorious God. And his glory is shown in in actually laying that life down for you. There's tremendous love and humility in God that he would do that. He laid that life down. Should you receive it, and all you need to do to receive that is to simply turn away from the things that displease God. Say, "I, I don't want to do those things anymore, the things the Bible calls sin. And I want to trust you, God. I want to follow you. Simply do that. Trust him believe in him, and that life is yours. He's laid his life down for you, for us. He paid the penalty for our sin on that cross. He offered that righteous life that pleased the Father. And on his behalf, when we trust in him, it's as if we live that righteous life. It's as if we fulfilled all righteousness. And we are welcomed as as sons and daughters, as, as kings and queens of sorts into his kingdom to know him and to love him, to be with him forever. He rose again on the third day, victorious over sin and death, and as a a sign and a picture of us of his victory and the promise that we too, when we trust in him, will receive eternal life. And one day we will rise again with new bodies in an eternal kingdom. And he's coming back to do that at any moment to complete this. That's the gospel. That's the word. That's the seed that's getting sown by this farmer. He's scattering the seed. He's scattering the seed in the soil. And then Jesus continues with this, and he's kind of talked about that previously, right? The parable of the seeds in the soil is the same idea, this farmer scattering the seeds. But, but now there's a turn in this story. This is a different story than that other story. That other story was about the soils and the responses, the different responses to the seeds. But now Jesus changes the story slightly, and he's speaking of this guy who scatters the seed, the, the farmer, And then he says in verse 27, he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. This isn't so much a parable about the seeds or the soils. It's a parable about the farmer. It's about the farmer and the seed and what goes on in the meantime. And so you see this this farmer here and you would expect maybe that the next line would say, and the farmer takes care of the field. He scatters the seed and and then he works hard. 
He stands by the edge of that field and he plows over the seed that's there. He makes sure that there's just the right depth of earth over every seed. He stands by there every day. He sets up scarecrows all around the field. He gets his irrigation system going to, to make sure that this, the seeds get watered. He, uh, he also, you know, he, he practices good crop rotation to make sure that the, the soil is fertile and oxygenated and everything. He does all these things, works hard night and day, laboring to make sure that this crop comes forth. But does it say that he does any of that? What does he do? He sleeps. And he gets up night and day. He goes about his business. He pays no attention and has no involvement after he scatters the seed. And it says he sleeps day and night. I think that the emphasis here is is to say that, you know, it isn't just that he goes about other business. He, He sleeps. He doesn't do much. He's asleep on the job here. The farmer is not diligent. And elsewhere it talks about the diligent farmer, and there are lessons there, but that but that's not the lesson of this parable. The lesson here is that this guy sleeps while the seed does something. He sleeps and he rises day and night. And he doesn't do anything. It's obvious by omission that there's an emphasis here on the farmer's inactivity. He sleeps. Do you know that we sleep about a third of our lives? Think about that. A third of of our lives. If you sleep eight hours a day, right? Eight times three, 24. It's a third of your life. So if you live to be 90, you will have slept 30 years of your life. 30 years. That's more than Rip Van Winkle, right? He did 20. 30 years of your life you will have slept. A third of your life. Can, can you imagine? Could you imagine hiring somebody to come and work on your house who slept a third of the time on the job? So they arrive there at 9, they're real busy, work till 11, and then they're going to go take a nap. They go up into your bed. Do you mind? I have this thing where I can work two hours and I can sleep an hour. Sorry. Can I use your bed? And they sleep for an hour. It gets to noontime. Well, you know, great sleep. They get up, you know, work another two hours, you know, really hard. Oh, it's 2 o'clock. Sorry, I've got to go take a nap again. Go back and sleep. And they do that over. Would, would you hire such a person? No. Imagine if our police officers in Haverhill did that. You know, they're on patrol, and they, just, you, you, they pull over, you drive by, and there's two guys sound asleep in the front of the car there. Um, you know, because it's the hour, one, one in every three uh, hours, they're asleep. We sleep a third of our lives. And yet we think that things revolve around us. We think that if we don't do it, it won't get done. Everything depends on us. God is really stupid if he's relying on us to get everything done. Because we sleep a third of the time. He's not. He's not stupid. And he's not relying on us in the way that we think. Yes, he does give us a job to do. But it isn't all that much. Because a third of the time we're asleep. And the other two-thirds of the time we barely know what we're doing. That's why this story is here. To help us understand this. And not to live in this delusion that it all revolves around us. Sleep is really humorous. It's a humorous statement from God to say, you are totally dependent on me. A third of the time you need to sleep, 
It's just an expression of our dependency on God. And it's a constant reminder that it does not depend on us. Yes, we have a role to play. Yes, he gives us a job to do. Yes, the farmer sows the seed, and then we're going to see he does something at the end. But that's only a little bit of the time. All the rest of the time, God is at work doing something. He's sleeping. And God wants us to know this truth, and he wants us to live in this truth and not live in this delusion that it all depends on us, our kids' salvation, the health of our church, the the state of Christianity in America, uh, or whatever other thing that you're anxious about does not depend on us. While he's sleeping, while he's getting up, going about his business, it says the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. He's not only asleep, but he has no idea what's going on. He doesn't understand. He, He doesn't know how this seed goes from being a seed to a plant. And, and people study these things, actually. They study germination, it's called. And there are a lot of aspects to it. And, and if you've read about it, you might understand certain basics. But there's a lot of complexity to it, actually. There's chemical things going on. I did a little research. I won't bore you with, that, with the, the details. But there's all sorts of, all sorts of uh, enzymes and different things happening, different levels, temperature, moisture things going on. It's actually quite complex. I think it would take a graduate degree in botany to really understand begin to understand what goes on in a seed, going from being a seed to being a plant. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. And a farmer in our parable, and probably most farmers, really don't know what's going on. They might know a little bit, but this farmer doesn't know. The seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. He doesn't know how it happens. He doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know the details. He doesn't understand He's not needed in the process. God is at work. There's a miracle at work in this seed. And so much of life is like this, and we need to remind ourselves of this all the time. Your heart, over the past minute, has beat 60 to 90 times. Maybe if you're really enjoying this message, it's over 90. I don't know. Um, It's beaten so many times, and you have had really nothing to do with that. It's known what to do. It's known how to beat. It's known how to maintain its pressure. It's, it, there's a lot of complexity in your heart. There has to be certain, certain timing of everything and certain pressures in it. Uh, and your heart's done all that. You know not how, unless you're a cardiologist or something. And even then, you don't know the fullness of it. Who tells your heart to beat? Who takes care of that? Who takes care of your blood pressure? I became aware of the miracle of blood pressure about, a, about two years ago. I got a blood clot, and my pressure uh, went really high. And, um, and, and you know what? No one understood. The doctors didn't understand why. It actually doesn't usually happen with the blood clot. It doesn't necessarily happen that your blood pressure went high. Mine went through the roof. Uh, and I, uh, they put me on medicine, and eventually, after six months, my blood pressure went way down. Actually, the medicine slowed my heart down so much as I started to get better that, I, that my beats were in the 30s. Um, and I realized I was at my desk, and I was working. And I'm alert while well, my, my heart beats, and I'm alert working. And then it, it, in, the, in between beats, it was like I was kind of falling asleep like that. So I, I, uh, I realized I better go in, and they took me off the medicine. But I got better, and no one knew how. Blood pressure is actually very complex. And I never appreciated it until I had high blood pressure. There's all sorts of things like that. Gravity. How does gravity work? We don't know. We know it works and we're very glad for it. But who knows? Scientists don't even understand it. It's faster than the speed of light. Uh, and, and, and that's a problem, actually, if you understand theory of relativity. It's just, it's just wild. Gravity works. There's all these things. Atoms stick together. 
there, there's these little tiny things zooming around. There's tons of energy and they, there's opposite charges. It should explode. An atom should just explode if, if there wasn't something holding it together. This is stuff that holds it together. It's the God factor in his creation. He, he does that. There's just so much of the reality around us that we know not how it happens. We don't understand and we have nothing to do with it. So why do we fret? Why are we stressed? Why do we worry when God is at work in all these things? Yes, he gives us a role to play. Yes, he uses our prayers. But there's so much that he does that we have no clue and no involvement in. And certainly for this farmer with the seeds, he has no involvement. And Jesus is saying, this is about the kingdom of God, right? So the kingdom of God is like this. The work of God The farmer sows the seed. The the Christian shares the good news of Christ. The parent shares about Jesus with their child. The pastor preaches the gospel. He scatters the seed. We scatter the seed. And then the rest, we know not how. We don't know what goes on. God works in people's hearts. There's a journey. There's things that he does. He, He stirs people. He does his work. And we know not how. We don't know. And, and we can fret over that. I, I, uh, I think of my, my dad. My dad passed about two years ago. Uh, two years ago. Actually, this week would have been his birthday. And as a young believer, I was so zealous that my dad, my mom, my whole family would understand Jesus like I had come to understand him. And certainly presumed a lot about what they did or didn't understand. But I can remember, actually, I sat down with my dad. He was busy working. I said, Dad, can, can I read you some of this stuff that I'm learning? And I actually said, I wanted to read the whole book of Hebrews to him in one sitting. Um, I was just so zealous, and it's a long book if you don't know it. Yeah, and uh, I, I got to about chapter 6, and he's like, Paul, that's very nice. I, I need to go to bed now, or I have some other things to do. Um, I just was so zealous. You know, I thought if I just work harder, if I share more of the Bible, you know, they'll understand. And, and, and I found, though, at the end of my dad's life, and many of you know the story, my dad got cancer, and God, God arranged a week for me to be with my dad. He was at work all the time. And I found in that week that he had been at work in my dad's life. And there was a faith in my dad. And, I, you know, the long story, he had, he had been healed uh, at a Catholic charismatic uh, meeting. Uh, had been healed. He had had a stroke. And his vision was healed. And, and it, it was basically he told me in that last week, you know, when, when I experienced that, I knew that God loves me. And I'm not f- fearful about death. He understood the gospel. And so in that final week of his life, I got to see what had happened to that seed. Whether it was my, you know, what I had shared with him or someone else, who knows? It doesn't matter. But God had been at work. And my efforts didn't make a whole lot of difference in that process. I scattered the seed, perhaps as part of that. But God had been at work. The farmer is asleep and does his business, yet in the meantime... The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. That seed is in the earth. The earth is making that seed grow, and it's, it's growing, and it's, it sprouts. It puts out a leaf. It starts to grow. It has a, an immature ear. Then the, over time, that, that ear matures, and there's grain in the ear. It all happens, and yet the farmer's not involved. God is at work. God is the one doing these things. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
when there's this argument about, the Corinthians are having this argument about, like, who's the best pastor? Who's the best leader? And they've had different leaders in that church. You know, some are saying, I follow Apollos. And some say, I follow Paul. You know, I, he's my favorite pastor. And others say, well, I, I follow Peter. Well, and others are like, I follow Christ. I don't know about you guys, but I, I follow Christ. Uh, and, and Paul refutes this whole thing and says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God gives the growth. God worked in my dad's life. God has worked in your life if you are a believer. He's perhaps at work right now, but he is the one who gives the growth. Jesus says in John chapter 3, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We don't understand this stuff. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the sovereign grace of God, the sovereign activity of God. He alone causes dry bones to come to life. He is our hope to work in people's lives. He is our hope to build this church and grow this church and use us. He is our hope for the salvation of our children and the change in his church and even in this nation. He is the one who does the work. We hope in him. We have a small job to do. He is the one who works. His sovereign grace is our only hope. And sharing the good news. It's our only hope as we minister in Christ's name, whether they were a Christian in the church or a leader. He is the one who causes the growth. He is like the earth that produces the seed. He's our hope in evangelism. He's our hope in spiritual life and vitality. He is. Theologian J.I. Packer in his wonderful book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, and if you are interested in sharing the good news of Christ, this is an essential read for you. He says this, I think we have this to project. There is abroad today a widespread suspicion that a robust Faith in the absolute sovereignty of God is bound to undermine any adequate sense of human responsibility. So if you believe this stuff, if you believe that he alone does it, you know, it'll make you un- unmotivated, right? He's going to do it whether I have a role or not, right? It can, that's what uh, Packer is saying. There's this idea that it will undermine an adequate sense of human responsibility. In particular, it is thought to paralyze evangelism. Evangelism is just uh, good newsing. That's what literally it means, sharing the good news. It is thought to paralyze evangelism by robbing one both of, the, uh, both of the motive to evangelize, and he says that the method as well. Far from inhibiting evangelism, faith and the sovereignty of God's government and grace is the only thing that can sustain it. For it is the only thing that can give us the resilience that we need if we are to evangelize boldly and persistently and not be daunted by temporary setbacks. Have you ever experienced a temporary setback? Someone you're sharing with, with your children, a temporary setback in church, we experience temporary setbacks. Faith in God's sovereignty makes all the difference. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, Packer goes on to say, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen. And there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. We may not trust in our methods of personal dealing or running evangelistic services, however excellent we may think them, there is no magic in methods, not even in theologically impeccable methods. 
When we evangelize, our trust must be in God who raises the dead. This parable ends in verse 29. God who raises the dead causes this grain, this seed to grow and produce and mature. And it says, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now the farmer is involved again. Because on its own, that seed came up, produced mature barley or wheat or whatever it might have been in the story. And now his job is to harvest it. He didn't do really anything. Spread the seed and just waited. And it came forth. And now his job is to harvest it. Now, this harvesting uh, is most completely fulfilled, really, in the harvest at the end of the age, at the end of all time. We will all stand before God, be judged by him, and those who have trusted in Christ will be vindicated, will be shown to be believers and forgiven and belonging to him, and they will be harvested. In a sense, they'll be brought in to be with him forever. And that's, that's good news. That is really the ultimate fulfillment. But I don't believe Jesus means just the final judgment. He means even the harvest that comes along the way. The lives that we see changed. People who come to understand the good news and trust in Christ. People who get it eventually. The light goes on. We see that. We see his work. We see his activity. And we harvest. We bring them in. We, we acknowledge what we see. We, uh, we invite them to consider being baptized as a sign of that relationship with Christ. That new relationship with Christ. And if you are a believer who hasn't been baptized please talk to us. Um, we'll have another one probably in the, another baptism in the early winter this year. We'd love to baptize you just as a, as a sign, a part of that harvest that you belong to him now. You are his. So we harvest, we bring them in, and we get to enjoy this blessing. What a fantastic occupation to be a farmer, isn't it? You sow the seed, and then you get to harvest at the end. You get the blessing. You get the blessing of harvesting. You do a little bit of work. God does pretty much everything. And then you get to enjoy the blessing at the end. You get to see people's lives transformed. That's good news. And, I, and for me as a pastor, I love being a pastor because of things like this. I love watching him at work. I love watching, uh, having, having uh, Taylor come up and, and watching uh, other young people at work in the church is a harvest of sorts for us. Sean and Hannah going away actually is sad uh, temporarily, but um, it's a picture of what God's doing in this church because as they go, we have, I think, about 10 different young people stepping into their roles. Uh, Youth Fellowship, uh, Stephen and Lauren Miller will be leading that with uh, help from Taylor, Jacoby, and, and Mariah Noland. Uh, our millennial groups that, that Sean's been leading, uh, will be Brennan Norton and I think Nick Lilly and Taylor and there may, may be others helping to lead that. Uh, worship team, the worship team that Sean's been leading, uh, it has about three or four young people that I, that I think are our future worship leaders. And so I'll be stepping in to, to really just help transition them and raise them up as future leaders. I mean, just think of that, the picture of God at work in, the, in these lives, not just, not just in the, their leadership, but, but he's brought these young people to himself. He's worked in their lives. He's developed them, and now they are stepping up to lead in the next generation. There's a harvest we get to enjoy because he's been at work. And there's lots of others as well. God is at work here. If the band could come up as we close. 
I just want to ask you some questions as we conclude because I think you're probably like me. You probably don't live every day in light of this wonderful story. You tend to live each day, often during your day, thinking that it all hinges on you. Being tempted by anxiety and not remembering we do very little. God does it all. So, some questions. Are you more aware of the miraculous, sovereign grace of God or what you need to do? Which are you more aware of? God's activity or yours? Are you more aware of the things you have to take care of, the wrongs, the things that are out of place, or the miracles of God all around you? Are you anxious? Are you constantly worrying? Are you going from one crisis to the next? Feeling like always anxious. Where is your hope? Where is your hope for spiritual life? Where is your hope for change in your children? change in your relatives or change in the church or change in Haverhill or wherever? Where is your hope? In your activity? Your hard work? Your prayers? Prayers matter, but is that where your hope is? And you getting the gospel right? Or is it in God who gives the growth? What can you do to change? Here's a couple things just to start. Practice thanksgiving. When you're anxious... Take it as an opportunity, an invitation, actually according to Philippians 4, to practice thanksgiving. Take that anxiety and start to thank God for his work. Remember what he's done. Thank him, and then pray about that thing. Ask him to work. Acknowledge what is your responsibility and what isn't. God, if you don't work, this won't happen. So I ask you to do it. Help me in my, what you call me to, but Lord, would you work? So give thanks and pray. Those are two excellent ways to live in light of this. So as, as we close and as we go into a final worship song, let's just take a moment right now to silently consider how to apply this wonderful truth that the kingdom of God advances and grows while we sleep.